Welcome to another episode of Photo Geek Weekly, episode 131, recorded on November 28th of 2020. This seems to be the year, the most memorable year that everybody wants to forget. And uh, we've got some good stories on the show uh, to remind us of uh, really the, the transitions in, in the world, the photographic industries this year with a man that has seen a lot of transition over his years. I actually, I, I try to plan stories for the guest, um, but I couldn't have planned the guest better for the stories I was able to pick out. With me today on this Photo Geekery show is Skip Cohen. Skip, how are you today? Um, I'm good, and I, and I have to laugh when you refer to things that I could only be an expert in because I'm, I'm rapidly becoming uh, classified as an old fart. Uh, well, so there I, is. I, I don't want to say that. I, you know, maybe, maybe <laughs> unanachronism is a better word. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Uh, the things that you are uh, an expert in are old and new at the same time. You know, the, the things that have gone on in the industry of yore, um, they are, uh, they're core to the values of the industry today still, but the industry is changing. And, and so too uh, are the things that we have held up or that have held us up as pillars. Uh, we're talking about trade shows. We're talking about common traditional elements of photography. Um, and it's all changing. It's all in flux. And it was before this year. Um, and now the, the paradigm shift has changed in a way that I don't think anybody could have predicted because nobody could have predicted a pandemic, right? Well, the pandemic has done something really interesting, and Shiv Verma made a comment on a, on a podcast a while back that the pandemic has given us something we never have called time. And <laughs> with that time, whether it's time to expand your skill set or learn a new specialty or buy a new piece of gear or do something, just do something different in your life, um, that time has also given us all an opportunity well, I think we're spending a lot more time looking in our rearview mirror, um, not to not out of in a morose way, but but in a way that, oh my God, it was only eight, it was nine months ago that we all had, you know, we all got together at WPPI and went out to dinner. It was nine months ago that I could see a buddy and and give him a big bro hug and not and not worry about, oh my God, I just I just violated the rules of. By the way, Bob Coates wants us to stop using social distancing and just refer to it as physical distancing because well, there's nothing. We're being nothing. social right now. <laughs> exactly. So the social distancing isn't an issue, but physical distancing. So, you know, my, my throwback Thursday has become almost a, a – not almost. It's become a regular routine and a fun piece of of my week just to look back and I don't have to go very far. Well, and it, it seems almost like yesterday I was in the same room that you are in. You put me up for a couple of days when I went down to Sarasota. But it also feels like that was a decade ago. Absolutely. Uh, time has a sense of fluidity this year that I don't think it's ever had before. And that was in January of 2020, by the way, uh, when I drove down to you. Um, made a wonderful uh, road trip Good out time. of it. And uh, we had a great time. Uh, and I'm glad we did it when we could, uh, because uh, I'm not allowed into your country right now, at least not <laughs> my car. Uh, and it's, it's not me. It's everybody. No, no, I got still it. Closed. Um, but, uh, you know, in that time, since we were last uh, being able to, you know, have a nice hug and share a meal and, and all that, um, the photographic industry, uh, they, they were gearing up for a lot of great things, right? You know, a, a lot of great uh, launches of products, but a lot of great conferences 
as well. And uh, it, the, the news came out yesterday, uh, and uh, this is being reported by DP Review, but I've seen it pretty well everywhere, um, that Photokina uh, is cancelled indefinitely. And uh, have you ever been to Photokina, Skip? Um, I have been to Photokina seven or eight times. My first one would have been uh, eighty around 82. I wasn't even born then. So, <laughs> all right, all right, there's a shot. I'm still uh, trying to figure out why why I'm supposed to refer to these as my golden years because there's nothing golden about it. Oh uh, well, but yeah, uh, 80, 80, 82 would have been my uh, first one. I was also there in '90 um, when the I mean the celebration the the wall had come down. Um, Hasselblad's booth they had actually brought in um, a group of interpreters that worked in the booth and all they were doing was looking for east german dialects and when somebody when they spotted somebody that had come to the show from east germany because this is the first time that 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 they were out and it was so incredible they were they were like kids in a toy store but they didn't have any money so rather than tie up anybody that had money to buy hasselblad had an ongoing presentation in another room so when anybody from East Germany came into the booth, they were quietly and politely ushered out, and not really ushered out, but I don't want to make it sound that way, but that was the business side of it and why, um, and given a presentation about the history of Hasselblad and the products and everything else because That's they really didn't want to tie up the booth with the excitement of tire kickers and not real shoppers. So, <laughs> Well, and you know, it's interesting that you base that on, on dialect. Um, I remember, I think this week, that France has just passed a law to prevent um, the discrimination uh, based on dialects. Um, uh, if you're coming from, if your Parisian French is not the same as some rural French, or heck, maybe it even applies to a, a, a French um, dans le Québécois. Uh, uh, but you know, it, it's, it's interesting that we, we judge based on those dialects for better or for worse. And, um, and so you use that as a marketing strategy, uh, back then, which is uh, to me, I think is fascinating. Well, that's what the German subsidiary was doing then. And it, and it was in all honesty, it really did have a practical application because you only had so many people that could work the booth and, um, for those of you, I don't know, were you ever at a photokina? I never had the opportunity. No. And, it, uh, I, I mean, it, it's, it's a bit of a flight and, uh, you know, if, if somebody were to you know, sponsor the, the, the costs to get out there, uh, for the weekend, I, I surely would have gone, but, uh, and it had been going on in Cologne, Germany since 1950, right? I mean, right. this is, uh, post-World War II, uh, you know, the, the world was putting itself back together and, uh, there was a resurgence in the photographic industry. I know that there was a lot of innovation at that time. Uh, and, uh, it, had continued until now and now indefinitely canceled I, I don't think that means like it is forever canceled um but you know they say thank you for 70 years together it almost seems like something you would put on a tombstone um it, well, it, it seems final in their statements i think but i but i think i think it is and i'm not saying it it should be but if you look at the if you look at the history of our industry and if you look at the last Let's take the last five years anyway, or maybe a little bit longer. They've been years of evolution and not revolution. And yeah. as the world's gotten smaller because of the internet, because any one of us can pick up a phone now and call anywhere in the world and have it cost virtually nothing, uh, the world's become a smaller place. 
And one of the things that I saw happening with Photokina, and it's probably been, oh my God, it's at least it's at least twelve to fifteen years since my since my last one. Um, there were less and less Americans coming over, and the reason was it had become the it was the largest photo show in the world. It was incredible in its heyday. Uh, you bumped into people that you hadn't seen in a year. You saw new products. You saw companies that you didn't realize how big they were um, until you got to Photokina and they might have had a 25,000 or 50,000 square foot building, for example, that was all their, all their own. And as the market changed, the cost to get over there, the exchange rate, everything that was happening, and then you had companies that were holding back. At first, people would introduce new products at Photokina, which Photokina became a definition for back order. Uh, companies would show products too early, and then we'd be sitting here six months later. They'd be showing things of here's what's coming to create excitement instead of here's what's here now. Right, and right. that also I think had a, an impact. And I I look at the change in Photokina. I mean, it's no difference that different to me than 2003 or four when the last Comdex show took place. There have been a lot of great shows over the years that changed because the industry changed. And in this case, to me, Photokina changed because all that information became available to us anytime we wanted. We didn't necessarily need to spend the money. But boy, in its heyday to have gone to Photokina, absolutely one of the most amazing events that, that you could be at. I, I think in general, trade shows uh, are, are going, going away. Uh, I mean, I, I remember going to the Electronic uh, Entertainment Expo, E3, in Los Angeles, uh, California, in uh, uh, 2005 and 2006. And uh, there was some big, uh, uh, big excitement because that was when we were having a transition from one generation of video game consoles to another in, in 2006. And you had hands-on experiences that you couldn't have in any other possible way. It was, um, it was, I don't know, uh, there was energy about it. Everybody was so enthusiastic. But now we get all of our news from uh, press releases, from videos, from influencers that show us everything that we need to know that might have early access to that stuff because it's mailed to them specifically. You don't need to congregate for the experience of the hands-on. I, I would say, though, that uh, the the networking and the personal aspects of things, that's what I think a lot of people are going to miss. Because whenever I hear of somebody that went to Photokina or WPPI or named the conference, um, it's the dinners, it's the laughs, it's the stories over drinks. Those memories, I think, um, they're going to go away and they're not going to be replaced by anything nearly as tangible. Well, actually, I, I agree with you to a point. But I think in 2021, sometime when we all feel safe to go out again, um, not so much to go out, but to congregate, um, I think you're going to see whatever shows are those first shows next year, which we all hope is going to happen because of a vaccine, because of drugs, because of better data, whatever you want to call it. Um, I think those shows will be incredible in terms of hands-on events, both for people to to see new gear and new products, but especially, I mean, somebody asked me a while back on a podcast, what do you miss the most? And I said, bumping into people, literally. All those freedoms that we've taken for granted for so long, 
um, they have not been replaced by online education and online exposure. And you don't have the same, you just mentioned it, networking, um, the dinners, uh, the memory making events, the the time, you know, you're walking down an aisle and you you bump into Bobby Lane because you, you haven't seen her in six months or, well, in this case, it'll be a year. Um, so it's just being able to get out there and be together. And I think those first those first couple of shows will be unbelievable depending on when, you know, the all clear sign goes out. Yeah. And it's like I, you I being able remember. to get out of Canada and come into the U.S. Yeah. And I can't remember when I last bumped into Bobby. I think it was at the Can-Am Photo Expo or something similar to that. And you just kind of pass each other in the hallway and it's like an excited, I wave, but by the way, I got to do a presentation in five minutes. So we'll right. catch up later. Right. Um, but even still, that, that, that that's uh, something memorable. I, I want to read um, uh, from the press release, just a paragraph here, uh, from the, uh, CEO of the company that organizes Photokina, uh, Gerald Bose. Um, unfortunately at present, the framework conditions in the industry do not provide a viable basis for the leading international trade fair for photography, video, and imaging. Uh, this hard cut after a 70 year shared history was very difficult for us. The trend in this industry uh, with which we have always had a close and trusting partnership is very painful for us to witness. We are facing the situation with a clear, honest decision against continuing this event, a decision to which, unfortunately, we have no alternative. Now, that no alternative statement there, I think, is is key, and I don't think it's completely accurate. I've been a part of a number of virtual conferences, um, you know, just, you know, sitting here in my office via Zoom or whatever platform uh, and listening to other presenters talk about things. You know, Apple has done some announcements with their iPhones, normally big crowds, but did so virtually. And I think so successfully. Um, is there a place before we move on to other stories here, Skip? Is there a place for not, not Photokina in what it was, but for something like it to be held in a virtual construct? Wow. I don't know. To be honest with you, I, it, there's a piece of me that says, yes, one of the great things about Photokina was the fact that you suddenly had access to literally every product in photography. If there was a company that just made a plastic knob or, or a, well, use neck straps as example. I mean, anybody that made anything was there. So that if you really, if you went off to Photokina and it was, I believe it was nine days. Um, I remember being there for three and saying, oh my God, I haven't, I haven't even scratched the surface yet because of all the products from all over the world. So I think there's, there could be something, but I think the cost and the ability to literally pull together every manufacturer in the world that had anything to do with photo, because that's what Photokina was when I go back to my first ones in the 80s um, and even into, even into 90 when I was there. I mean, it was, it was every product. So when you talk about a virtual conference, you've got to have a truly effective virtual way to be able to show people product. And the fun thing about Photokina was that it was hands-on. And you might walk down an aisle of 10 by 10 booths, and all of a sudden you've found a half dozen products that you never knew existed. And, and the manufacturers who were willing to do just about anything to make their product meet 
your needs. So I love the, those yeah. niches, the, those obscurities, because yep. when you're going through those tiny booths uh, in any industry, and, and I've I've done so uh, in others outside of the photographic space, um, you you come across this uh, obscure ten by ten booth. There's nobody else around, so you get to monopolize the time uh, and really hear the passion of the person you on just the froze. other side of that oh. desk or whatever it is. And um, <laughs> and those those conversations, I, I think, are are exceptional. Um, those are the ones that I think we lose when we don't have uh, when, when we don't have an in person show. And there's I don't think the big people, yes. Um, the, the the large uh, you know billion dollar manufacturers we we will always hear from them but it's the little guys I think that uh, that lose that personal conversation and it's a hard way f- I don't know if there is a way for them to get it back in in the same constructs right yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, one of the big manufacturers now. Moving on to the next story. Um, Fujifilm is in the news because via a firmware update, and I love, uh, maybe this is an aside, but I love that manufacturers are adding firmware updates that enhance the features of cameras that you are already happy with. Uh, I just had a firmware update and a a brief PSA for any Lumix S-series shooter. Uh, In the last week, uh, Panasonic has uh, issued firmware updates for the S1, S1R, S1H, S5, as well as I think the G9 and the G100, all with feature improvements. Um, Particularly, uh, I was happy with the S1R because not only does the autofocus get better, but they added 5K recording instead of just 4K recording. So it makes it an even more capable B camera uh, for me when I'm doing, uh, you know, film shoots and stuff. So... um, I, I love that that is a trend in the industry, and Fujifilm has also just added pixel shift multi-shot technology uh, to the GFX 100, which uh, theoretically is uh, adaptable to any camera that has an in-body image stabilizer, wherein if you shift the sensor around by sub-pixel shifts, left, right, up, and down, um, you can quadruple the resolution of any camera. Uh, and you know, Sony has done it, taking 16 separate shots. The Lumix cameras, uh, they, they do this by taking uh, eight shots. And I think that's, uh, uh, Fuji is doing 16 images. Uh, so they're kind of in, in the same line as Sony, combining them together. Uh, Olympus with the, um, uh, the uh, EM1X, uh, they do a five-shot version as well that doubles the resolution. So this technology is all over the map, but it shifts the sensor around, increases the resolution of the sensor. So from 102 megapixels, you go to over 400 megapixels of resolution, which I think is, um, it's obscene. Uh, I don't know if I would use it, but, but Skip, I also use that 187 megapixel file from my uh, S1R because it's there. And maybe I'm future-proofing my investment when I take images at such high resolutions and I do artwork reproduction photography. If you were shooting film, uh, you know, like 8 by 10 film, let's say, like really large format, you were doing so because of the resolution it afforded. And if you were to shoot at that resolution of film, that might be equal to 400 megapixels uh, not that many people are these days. Uh, I have some Kodak Portra once, uh, no, it's, is it 160 or four, uh, 400 Kodak uh, uh, Portra 400 in 11 by 14 format um, in my freezer right now from what might be their last production run of that. And I, cause I have a camera that can shoot it, but why would I 
when I can get 400 megapixels out of a digital camera. Now, with your experience at Hasselblad, uh, they they made medium format cameras for the most part, uh, and they garnered quality uh, over quantity. Uh, and there was a, a brand reputation that Hasselblad had that, I, I mean, they're still around, don't get me wrong, but um, th- the fact that you can get something that is far less expensive with similar qualities, I just want your your sense of what the industry is doing oh. with these cameras and where they've come and uh, opine to me, sir. Okay. Um, first of all, I want to remind you and everybody listening that I am the low-tech poster child of the industry. <laughs> I know more than I let on having hung out with so many of you, including you, Don, um, who I refer to as the mad scientist, because I I love it when when you're telling me something that you're doing. And after I hang up the phone, I have to go look up words that you just used that I have (laughs) no idea what the hell they mean. Um, If I go back to my Hasselblad days, the argument on Hasselblad was a combination of Zeiss optics and the film flatness system that gave you incredible sharpness. And Ernst Wilde, the legendary professor, would go out and lecture, and he would talk about, you know, taking an image up to, you know, a 50 by 50 print, and then he'd preface by saying the slide he was showing was a 50 foot by 50 foot. Um, Don Blair did a program once at WPPI where we did a live shoot, and we had prints made up the following morning, um, and he said, you know, let's, let's talk about, uh, an eight by 10, I'm sorry, five by seven and the quality here. And then I came down the aisle with a five by seven, five foot by seven foot print in about a 200 pound folio that had been made out of, of, out of wood and covered in leather to look like at the time an art leather folio, just how big you could blow up an image. And the reality is, if I look back on those days versus today, um, if you're a, it, it's very rare that anybody is going to be shooting an image today. Especially, let's take all your catalog guys. Um, they they need great resolution, but they can also pull a small portion of an image um, out of the file and get what they need for that catalog page. It's very rare that you're seeing somebody that's presenting in a catalog or a magazine, um, a full page double spread. And with today's products and technology, um, you can do it without having to get to where were you 400 megapixels a minute ago. (laughs) So it becomes an application issue. And I mean, I just, the the part that fascinates me the most, and you can argue whether we're in the 197th year of photography or the 220th, depending on when you decide photography got started. But if you look at the last 200 years, artists today have never had more creative tools at their disposal than right now. I mean, I shoot with with the G9, which I absolutely love, and I refer to the G9 is making my work look better than it deserves because I am, I, my profile is more like a serious hobbyist. I mean, I could do a gorgeous portrait that was as good as anything Tony Corbell could shoot or Bobby Lane, but it would take me 10 hours and it would take them 10 minutes. And that's, you know, that's the difference in how often I might be doing that kind of an application. 
But I think the you know, technology is. I, I have a great analogy right into your hands, um, uh, Skip. Like the, the other day, I uh, I was in daddy daycare mode for uh, two or three days straight while my wife was was working, and I have great respect for her as a registered nurse working in long term care facilities during a pandemic. Um, and my support goes out to all of the uh, the frontline workers, including the one in my household. Um, but I I was I was both a father, a teacher's assistant to virtual kindergarten, and uh, I decided you know we, we've got a uh, an upright piano, uh, and I figured I I don't know how to play it. My wife just kind of doodles on it. Uh, I don't know, that's not the right word, but she just we, we neither of us know how to play, but we just love the sound of an instrument. So I learned how to play Yankee Doodle. Um, the other day I learned the, uh, the keys and my daughter learned the, the lyrics. And so we both were singing and playing a song. Um, now I'm, I'm doing just total amateur hour stuff with that. But if somebody comes like the guy that tuned the piano, I asked him to just play something and it sounded like a, just like I, I should be paying him to play as well as tune the piano. It was just artful. And I, I can't do that. No matter what quality of instrument, hand me a grand piano and I, I can play Yankee Doodle on it. That's all. It's all I am capable of producing um, within that uh, uh, in that structure. But uh, somebody that does have the skills can take full advantage of the equipment, and I think that's what we're seeing here. Um, but I, also, you know, wait a minute. If you decided tomorrow that you want to be able to sit down and play anything that Mozart ever wrote, knowing you like I do. You would get focused and you would be doing this day and night as much as you could. And within a certain time period, you would have that skill set. And that's the fun right now for me of what I see. And some of it is caused by the pandemic where people are stepping out of their comfort zone and starting to get into other aspects of imaging that they normally wouldn't have touched. Yeah. And that's that's the excitement of the technology you're talking about with with Fuji's announcement, for example. Well, and and you you hit on one thing earlier. You mentioned Zeiss optics, and and the optics are really important to make something like this work. Because if if you have a poor quality lens, sure, your camera is technically recording a 400 megapixel image, but it might not be able to resolve that much detail. Um, and we could get into all the issues of optical design and diffraction, and we're we're not going to go down that road. But um, the thing is, if you put a poor quality lens on a great camera your bottleneck is going to be somewhere. Uh, otherwise, you put an exceptional lens on a very low-resolution camera, you'll have a bottleneck somewhere. And I think that when you start to push to 400 megapixels, when the medium format sensor size of the uh, GFX 100 is not the same size as a phase one, you know, it's a smaller, medium format is a kind of a flexible term. Uh, and and so when you have that much resolution, the same thing with your G9, uh, Skip, it's a 20 megapixel camera, and the high resolution mode in there quadruples it to 80 megapixels, which is exceptional if you wanted to use that. But if you put on like the uh, 12 to 32 millimeter uh, kit lens that comes with some of the less expensive cameras, I, I think they might sell it separately as well. But it, it's a starter lens, you're not going to get the the impact of those 80 megapixels right. with that lens there's so many factors to consider um within that and and piggybacking off of this story 
was also an announcement that Fuji has introduced, they call it the GFX 100 IR. Uh, and they say for 100 megapixel infrared imaging, which I thought was a neat idea. Uh, I know Canon has produced uh, versions of their cameras for astrophotography that have a different cutoff filter that lets the hydrogen alpha line, which is normally just on the edge of the red that gets filtered out to be let in so that astrophotographers can can play nicely with their cameras. Um, Fuji has made an infrared version, but it doesn't take a lot of reading within uh, this to realize that it's not actually an infrared camera. Um, it is a full spectrum camera because they state that you could put filters on the front of the lens to return it to a visible spectrum camera uh, or to various levels of infrared filtration uh, in, into that spectrum for forensic purposes or artistic purposes, I'm sure. Um, and that also means, although not in the press release, you could do ultraviolet work too. And I've modified a Lumix S1 to have exactly the same functionality from a third party. Shout out to uh, Dan Llewellyn uh, from uh, New Jersey's MaxMax.com, who did the conversion for me and did it uh, outstandingly well. Uh, third parties have always been able to, to handle these types of conversions. This is the first time that I've seen a first party manufacturer, like the actual manufacturer, offering this as a niche product, as a separate unit made to order, mind you, but it's not hard for them to just not put on the filters in front of the sensor. Um, and so, I mean, that's that. It's out there if anybody wants a full spectrum camera from, uh, from Fuji themselves. Uh, without those filters that block the ultraviolet and the infrared, so you can choose to filter it down yourself. For a science market, um, I know famously uh, Hasselblad has sent cameras to the moon. Uh, you know, it, in, in, I mean, that wasn't in your history with the company, obviously, but... Um, oh, yes, it was. Uh, so w when were well, you at Hasselblad? I was at Hasselblad from 87 to 99, and we were flying on every mission. In fact, I walked into... Uh, Chuck Kateris, who we sadly lost well, a lot of years ago. Th those um, weren't moon missions, though. Those were just space missions. Well, those are space missions. Right. Correct. But I remember walking into Chuck's office and, you know, not noticing he was on the phone. And I just barged in to ask him a question. And he gave me a quick shh, shh, and put his finger up to his mouth. Well, he was actually on the space station with one of the astronauts. Um, they had a camera jam. And he was taking him through how to clear the camera jam. So he was... He was patched back through, um, I'm assuming, Houston at the time and and was helping them <laughs> fix the camera. But you're right. On the moon on the moon mission, the moon landing, I wasn't there yet. But 87 to 99, um, Hasselblad, during the time I was there, was flying on every every mission. And, uh, you know, you had to make special uh, adjustments for, for these cameras. I mean, they had to uh, operate, especially in, in a vacuum. You've got to use different lubricants. You have to use different or maybe no lubricants at all and design the camera that way specifically. I'm not sure how they did it. But Hasselblad had a history of these niche products, not just for NASA. Um, but I remember uh, seeing some online auction sites for just obscure cameras from Hasselblad and Leica and stuff from typically post-World War II. Uh, there was a lot of uh, innovation and, and during the wars as well, uh, you know, for, for governments or for very unusual products and ideas. And there, there was a, an air of um, just let's, let's, let's design something and see where it goes. And maybe it's going to be the next great thing. And, and maybe it turns into nothing. Um, but at least you get to file a patent about it. 
Oh, was that was that that silent pause waiting for me to comment? Yes, it was. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't have one. I just agreed. All right. Well, I, I do. For those of you that. out there, you can't see that I nodded my head and shrugged my shoulders and said, "Yeah." <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. And I don't think we can talk too much more about those niche markets. I'm glad that they still exist, and I'm glad that the photographic industry, as it is changing, can still embrace uh, that that same energy. And it doesn't cost Fuji. Uh, much if anything it just they skip part of the manufacturing process to produce a camera that lets all of the light in uh, and not just the light that we see um, and that brings us to another uh, kind of uh, paired together story about Nikon and uh, reported on, on Petapixel here uh, that Nikon is in quote dire straits as its slump is particularly untimely, says a report. Uh, followed up by a story on F-Stoppers that says that Nikon just teased its roadmap of mirrorless lenses, including some additional halo lenses uh, that include a, a 200 to 600, a 400 and 600 millimeter telephoto, uh, super telephoto lenses. Um, this is, uh, I mean, it's good news that Nikon is really all in in terms of their optics and their glass and really fleshing out the system for the professional photographer market um, as they did with their knocked their uh, f0.95 lens um, but the sales of cameras are are slumping i mean across the industry it's not just nikon it, it's everybody and um so uh, you know as well as uh, anybody that's worked in the industry that the r d costs of rolling out a new platform are substantial, uh, especially during a time when sales, whether it's the industry at large or it's impacted by the pandemic, are going down. So where do you see Nikon sitting in the industry and what is their path forward? Well, I don't think Nikon is the only one that's in trouble. They may be the only one whose numbers are out there or they may be the most in trouble. But if you go back, let's go back about, I don't know, 20 years ago. And there was always a battle between, are you a Canon shooter or a Nikon shooter? And I remember doing a study way back when, when Polaroid came out with the Spectra uh, camera. And that would have been, uh, God, I'm just trying to think back now, um, mid-80s, uh, maybe a little bit earlier. Um, and I remember that that there was a... There was a there was a focus group they did where they trying to determine what kind of cameras, what was the profile, the demographics of a person that shot. And I don't remember why Canon and Nikon came up, but Canon in that time um, was the was the tourist getting off the plane in Hawaii with the flowered shirt and the baggy Bermuda shorts, and was low tech. And Nikon was was your was your wildlife photographer was your guy on the sidelines and then all of that started to shift and that old battle and then sorry i'm going a roundabout way of getting to this that battle between canon and nikon i compare it to me as a kid and muscle cars between ford and gm you're you're one or the other well now those muscle cars come in come from fuji and they come from sony and they come from olympus and they come from panasonic and if you look at how segmented the market has become um i'm not sure i'm not sure that brand loyalty even exists anymore investment loyalty exists because somebody's got they they started out with nikon and they've got x number of nikon lenses or they started with canon or they started with something else 
But as technology keeps changing, that ability to capture consumer loyalty, I think, has gotten tougher and tougher. And I think that, to me, is more of what Nikon is up against. Um, and and so is everybody else. The market, I mean, you've got at least five major players in camera gear now. And I'm not counting, um, you know, Hasselblad and and some of the other cameras out there that, that are all playing in the digital game with, you know, huge megapixel capture and incredible quality. You said something fundamentally uh, important, that it's not brand loyalty, it's investment loyalty. And when when you transition from a traditional slapping mirror camera, uh, an SLR, the SLR, to a mirrorless platform, then you have something that your lenses are adaptable. Like I've taken my Canon glass and adapted it to the Lumix uh, S series and and it works fine. It, it, it's not native support. You know, I'd rather have uh, a lens designed for the platform to, to function a little bit better, but it, it still works and that investment can carry forward. And so you can jump across brands. You don't have to stick uh, to say, if you were always shooting Canon, then yeah, you can adapt the glass, but even from first party to first party, it's never going to be perfect. You know, the, the newer lenses are always going to be designed better for the, the next platform. And so I've seen a lot of people that have been shooting Nikon or Canon, uh, you know, two of the big guys, uh, or, you know, even Pentax, uh, they, they look, see, okay, well, you know, I've got these lenses, um, there, there's adapters that let me throw it onto a Sony camera, a, a, a Lumix camera, Canon, wh- whatever the new mirrorless platform is, the adapters are so available. Uh, and so you see people think, okay, well, um, I'm going to go and, and, and buy into this new camera body. Uh, and they look at, well, you know, maybe they're video centric and the Lumix S1H tickles their fancy, or maybe they want something super tiny and they could go to the uh, Sony A7C or the Lumix S5 or one of those smaller full frame bodies. Um, and and then they just take everything with them. And now that's going to be their new platform. And it's not the brand. It's that product at the time of transition that I think is really important. And I don't know if Nikon really wowed people with the Z6 and the Z7 uh, compared to other offerings in the market. I'm not saying they're bad. I, I don't think you can go out and buy a bad camera right now. I think they're all great. But uh, I think whatever the better camera is right now to buy is what people are gravitating towards and not the brands that are behind them. Well, take it one step further. We haven't, we're, we're talking about Canon and Nikon and all the major manufacturers in terms of cameras, but look at the quality that you're getting out of, out of Tamron right now. And every time Tamron continues to come out with great class with, with new specs on it that half the time, I mean, I never did understand how to read an MTF curve. You do, I know. But yes, and, and I've loved the Tamron ninety millimeter macro right. lens, which I which I own, and and I've recommended a lot of people play with uh, because it's great. And these third party manufacturers, Sigma, Tokina, Tamron, of course, uh, they're they're making better glass than they ever have before. Well, and now put all that together with with the previous story on on the full spectrum camera from Fuji. And look at consumers, not consumers, look at photographers right now and the time they've got to step outside that comfort zone. I mean, this is an exciting time. And it, it I mean, I'm getting away from the, the original topic of the story of Nikon is struggling. Uh, but I don't think Nikon is the only one struggling. It just happens to be in the spotlight at that moment in time. 
Yeah. Well, and I think so. that Nikon doesn't have a lot of additional industries. Uh, they do uh, some scientific imagery. I think they make glasses and scopes for rifles and binoculars and what have you. Uh, you know, it's not just photography, but it is fairly centered around that uh, without any other really big industry where Panasonic makes everything from aviation equipment to, you know, the, the batteries in my electric car. Uh, Sony makes pretty well everything electronic under the sun in some fashion. Um, and when, when you buy, uh, I, I remember a, t- a teardown of a a Canon Rebel. Uh, I forget exactly which one it was, but uh, I think it was an XSI. Uh, the screen on the back of the camera, uh, the LCD was made by Sony, right? Sony manufactures so many different components uh, in in so many different cameras, even if it's not branded by them. They have this sort of larger safety net that if there's a slump in the photographic industry, then, uh, you know, if they can see that curve kind of bending back up over time, maybe some of their competitors completely fall off and disappear, then they can gain a larger portion of the market share. And they're ho- they, they might hold on uh, to that end because their photo enterprises can be propped up by their other uh, avenues of, uh, of making money. And so I, I think you... You mentioned it that there's so many big players that are doing such great work, but I'm not sure if the industry can support all of that in terms of the number of sales. And so I predict that there will be a fall off of companies. We are already seeing Olympus being sold to an investment company, and they're saying they're going to carry it forward. We have no idea in what way that's going to happen. Um, Rico Pentax, um, I, I don't really see much of a way forward for them in in all of the transitions that we're seeing as well. Uh, and Nikon might be added to that list, I think. And, and we're going to have a narrowing of the market uh, as that happens. Well, remember, Hasselblad is owned by a Chinese drone company. DJI, exactly. You got it. Um, and if you look at if you look at changes out there over the last few years, there's going to be more consolidation, and exactly what you're talking about is going to happen. I mean, when when the let's see, the tsunami hit in 2010 or 11, and I remember working. PMA was a client at the time. There's another show that's gone. PMA was a client at the time, and all of a sudden there were three or four major manufacturers that pulled out of the show. And it was Canon, Nikon, um, Fuji, uh, because it didn't do them any good to go to the show when they knew they weren't going to have product for for X number of months as Japan recovered. But it wasn't even that it was their their plants weren't affected. It was their sub suppliers, the sub manufacturers that were making components, just like you talking about taking a Rebel apart, and the screen was made by Sony. So that crossover out there um, is has changed you've got so many different companies involved uh, exactly if samsung loses their factory that produces the memory chips that you know uh, that have to go into the camera for the camera's buffer um and for all of it's just regular operation well then you can't make the camera if you're missing that component right right and we have and we're not we're not going to do it today but we haven't even touched on what's going on with phone technology well, I, I think we might in our final so, story in a roundabout way, just in terms of nostalgia, but we're not there yet because yeah. we, we have to get to one other story, which I think is uh, industry appropriate uh, from Leica's perspective. Uh, Leica had an app, um, uh, the Photos app, uh, capital F-O-T-O-S. I don't think it's an acronym. I think they're just being fun with words. Um 
that is now free to download, and it interfaces with um, a lot of their more modern cameras that have uh, Wi-Fi capabilities to connect to a smartphone or a tablet. Um, and previously, you would have to, if you wanted this additional functionality, uh, it was $50 a year. It was a subscription base. And, uh, and so a lot of the premium functionality of the app was hidden behind the subscription. You could use it without it. Um, but, uh, you know, if you wanted to use uh, Adobe Lightroom integration, uh, transfer raw images, use live view video capture, all of this stuff, uh, was previously hidden behind a subscription. And, um, I don't like that idea, Skip. I mean, it would be as if um, uh, Canon has always had their digital photo professional, which is a raw processor that Canon has. It's proprietary to them. Um, it's always been free. You know, if they if they charged a dollar for it, zero people would use it because there are better alternatives. And in fact, very few people do use it because it is kind of proprietary. I, when I was shooting Canon, I did experiment with it for a little bit before I moved over to Lightroom or uh, to On One software and, and and lots of other alternatives that are a little bit broader scope. Um, and uh, so Leica put a paywall up on their software. And I think, and I have no inside knowledge on this, but I think that they realized nobody was paying it. Uh, and that the value add was basically making it free for their customers uh, that have already spent a lot of money to buy into the luxury brand of Leica itself. What do you think about first party manufacturers actually charging for software to add value to I, their products? I think it's a gigantic mistake. I, there were, first of all, just as a, as an industry right now within photo, uh, I think everybody is on, on, on or close to overload. There is so much that's accessible. You can find anything you want online I don't know why anybody even bothers to print an instruction book anymore uh, to put in the box with the camera because nine out of 10 times, nobody reads it. And then the rest of the time when you do need something, um, I mean, I've got five or six different Lumix cameras here. I don't know what the instruction books are. When I can't remember how to do something, I go look it up online. Yeah, so you I just think type in name of camera, yeah. manual PDF, and Google will give you in the first three results, it's going to be there. Right. It, it's there and you've got it. And you can also go in without having to go through an instruction book. It's almost like going through the, the phone book. Nobody, They still print one here in Sarasota, which amazes me. Um, but you don't look anything up in the phone book either. You go to your phone and you pull it up and you find it on the internet. I, it, In terms of a manufacturer trying to charge for that, I just... I. I just think it's a mistake. I think it makes winds up making a manufacturer look um, cheap. I'm not questioning. You said something earlier about the cost for R&D and trying to develop new platforms, and that's all part of it, and I recognize that. But I think manufacturers are much smarter to work with somebody that's already got the expertise out there, put it out there. Don't You don't need to private label it because – I'm not sure there's, we talked about, I mentioned brand loyalty before. I don't think there's any brand loyalty necessarily, even with Photoshop and Lightroom and Luminar. Um, there's so many other ways that people are adjusting and manipulating the image. It's the same thing. So many companies so, uh, allow you to take your Lightroom catalog and just import it into their software. And right. I did that with uh, On One Photo Raw. And now that's an excellent digital asset manager, as well as raw processor that has, you know, it, it has some increased functionality. It can do focus stacking of raw photos. It can, um, it has better highlight control than, than uh, Lightroom does. And yes, it's a cat and mouse game. 
right? You know, it, the, the target is constantly moving. Um, and, and I think we have to realize that it will only be speeding up, um, that it will only become less obvious what the proper choice is going to be because there are so many good ones. And if you hide a good choice behind a paywall, when there are so many other good choices that are also free, nobody's going to pay the money uh, to, to use it. And so uh, I guess kudos to Leica for realizing that and removing that paywall and uh, letting anybody that's paid that brand loyalty price of the Leica red dot to not have to be, you know, uh, squeezed a little bit extra for that $50 a year for that software that uh, I, I'm sure if anybody were to like spend good money on a Leica S3, uh, which is not a cheap camera, and then be asked to pay $50 more for the software. Yeah, that's going to leave a bad taste in anybody's mouth. And that I, I guess possibly hurts that brand loyalty. So let's move on to our final story. Um, and uh, this, uh, reported by Petapixel, is Kodak to release a 70s-inspired metal film case, uh, metal film cases in six colors. Now, Kodak is not doing this. Um, they Kodak has always been licensing their brand out, um, and, and I remember Polaroid has done the same thing. And th there are still Polaroid branded sunglass stores in Varna, Bulgaria, that I sent you some photos <laughs> of before, as I was thinking of you, and we, I walked past them. And you see that brand on anything from sunglasses to portable DVD players because it's just been licensed. And Kodak has been doing the same thing. I remember there was a was it at CES one year that they had a Bitcoin miner that was branded Kodak. And and, and there was a bit of a fiasco or scandal about that. So they just, they licensed their name. And so a company called Rito Pro, um, which if it's the same company, uh, was it last year? I think they made a, uh, a three lens 3D plastic camera um, that uh, I think cost around a hundred bucks. And it was just a cheap plastic camera that should have been worth half that price. Um, and it didn't really get a whole lot of fanfare. But these they kind of, these film cases strike a chord with me in terms of nostalgia. Um, and I, I'm, I'm a nostalgic photographer. I mean, I've got film cameras here. I've got, I've got uh, Kodak Ektachrome. As soon as they re-released it, I bought a bunch of it in multiple formats. I haven't shot a single roll of this film. And, and I guess part of the reason why uh, is there's kind of an inconvenience about that. Uh, but I still love nostalgia in photography. And I think it fuels my energy, my passion for photography as things move forward. Um, what do you think, Skip, about, uh, first of all, uh, about these film canisters, but about how nostalgia is actually keeping professional photographers in a tactile space instead of reverting to the magic and wonder that is in our smartphones that do it all for us, that to anybody that's not in the industry can say, oh, well, that looks beautiful. And they don't care that the bokeh in the background is fake, um, that they, they don't care that it wasn't created on a vintage uh, Helios 44 lens. Um, are we are we holding on to this nostalgia and bringing that tactile experience to the art form uh, just because we've experienced it in the past? Or is it actually necessary for us to move forward and create the art that we want to create? Well, you know my answer with this, <laughs> because right now I'm looking through my Don Kamarechka, um 3D viewer. 
Uh, I, um, I sent I sent Skip a. Uh, it, it's not a Viewmaster. It, uh, the patents have expired on the design, so I can't but use a knockoff. The, the name to call. It's it's a knockoff, um, and it has a uh, a reel of 3D images inside that that has the little lever that you press. And I think it was a bunch of photos of bees. It was in- bees on flowers. It was great, and they're <laughs> and they're 3D, and you sit and stare at them. So the the question was. Um, are we clinging to the past? Uh, I think there's a real quest back to um, the classics, and and I, and in part, I agree with you. A a young photographer just getting started today, who's never shot a roll of film, cannot appreciate the fun of having a couple of film canisters that that's in their camera bag. Um, but there are a lot of other products that are out there. I mean, I found my first digital camera the other day, which was the the Kodak, I don't even remember what it was called. It was, I want to say, a 250 or a 200, something or other, that was two megapixel, and it was phenomenal, and it was going for thirteen or $1,400 uh, at the time. Those products, um, there are roots, and a young photographer today may not appreciate it, but for those of us or, or those photographers out there that, let's say, that are over uh, – that are over 30, that are over 40, that may have started out with a film camera, may have started out with that rebel that you talked about. Um, There is a fun little bit of nostalgia to go back. Now, it's another niche market to me. It's not, it's not huge. It's, I think it'd be difficult for a lot of companies to find their way to make, to turn it into a full-time business and employ hundreds of people. But for some of these little mom and pop companies and products that are out there that can do that, um, I think it just becomes it just becomes fun. It's a it's like a return to the classics. It's every now and then finding a a great movie on TV and you actually watch it in black and white because that's the way it was meant to be watched, and it's kind of fun if you look at what's going on in the record world um, and audio technology and some of that. I mean, I. I miss my my thirty pound Sirwin Vegas speakers, which have now been replaced by you know these little things. But it was a piece of furniture, and I'm not. It was, I'm not it was back designed it. that way. Yeah. I mean, it was made of like solid oak, and right. uh, uh, and 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 sometimes they even had designs carved into the sides of them just to make them ornate. Right. Well, that um, was the fun of going to CES for me. Is was wasn't just imaging. And by the way, there's another reason that shows like Photokina have had such a hard time because there's so much overlap in technology now. You know, and I had uh, I, I had a, a, a fun uh, talk with my wife last night. Uh, we were uh, sitting around our. We've got a beautiful antique uh, parlor stove, and uh, we were we were sitting there just uh, winding down our evening. And I thought, you know. Yeah, we, we like you know classic stuff. I mean, we, we like uh, the modern things, of course. But uh, w- what do you think? Just for fun, we uh, we, we we grab some pairs of uh, of anaglyph glasses, the red blue glasses, and uh, we we watch a classic, probably terribly done 3d film that you would have had to go to the cinema and wear these crazy glasses and just just have fun just make that a a completely different experience than we wouldn't really be having in 2020 unless we deliberately uh, sought it out um just for the sake of nostalgia and and i think that there is value in that 
I think the greater question, however, is whether or not somebody is going to uh, spend the the multiple thousands of dollars on a Nikon F zero point nine five Noct lens um, for a modern camera to get a particular look when I can approximate that look on an iPhone twelve. Uh, or whatever the iPhone 13 or 14 or whatever it's going to be, because that technology is becoming so good so quickly um, that can replicate the exact same look and feel. It's sort of the same idea of um, would you would you print something optically in a dark room uh, versus on an inkjet printer? Is there is there a real difference in the feel that the average person, the mass majority of people, would? ever notice probably not but i remember a story i'm going back about 10 years ago there was a story in the la times in the sunday magazine um, about a woman who was a photographer in uh, somewhere around la who was positioning herself as a photographic craftsman because she was going back and shooting all her portraits and weddings on film and it's sort of, and it was funny. It was, it, it's marketing at its best when you think about it. It um, is. And but she was positioning it as, as the excitement of going retro um, and shooting film. And I, I remember having a conversation with Chris Rainier years ago, who was one of Ansel Adams' assistants, about whether or not Ansel um, would, he have, would he be adopting all the new technology. And Chris's feeling was, hell, yes. Because he wanted anything he could do to create the ultimate image. Um, and he would have been playing in all of the technologies. So I remember hearing that uh, uh, Ansel Adams was introduced to one of the very first uh, digital photo editors um, at uh, the, the very end of his life. And uh, I'm sure it was like rudimentary. I'm not even sure if it was color. I haven't uh, followed up on the story. But his response was... Um, just uh, uncontrolled enthusiasm uh, for what what that meant, but uh, but not what it was. Like well, where it was going uh, was where the enthusiasm uh, was all about. And I think that we all have to embrace that while somehow simultaneously straddling the fact that photography is fundamentally changing. And the tools that we would have used in the past to get a specific look, a feel, an understanding of the craft, um, there's different ways to do that now. The traditional way will always be an option. And some right. people, the purists, will always uh, look to that. But that's not the only way now. And if the two are indistinguishable down the road, and I think we're going to hit that convergence at some point, then especially for somebody of my daughter's generation, who she's four and a half years old right now, and she's growing up knowing that the portrait mode uh, on, on an iPhone uh, gives the same look to her eyes, anyhow, that uh, all of my fancy expensive camera equipment gets, uh, and that that's only going to get better, and it's going to be able to throw like heart-shaped bokeh in the background by pressing a button or whatever she wants to do. Um, that's her mode of creativity. And my... Uh, purism of photography by bending light is different. It doesn't make one better than the other, but both are equally valid, I think. Well, this is where I get a kick out of. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a fan of, especially um, when you go to some of these larger conventions that are tied back into costumes. And it's like 
Dragon Con in Atlanta I was at years ago, steampunk becomes the convergence of, you know, the, of two technologies or two different, you know, the, the, the side that's retro and the side that's, that's jumping on technology. And I guess it sounds kind of stupid, but there's kind of a convergence here and we're into, you know, steampunk photo. Uh, and these film canisters, uh, I guess that is kind of steampunk. It's some, they've got some options with the, uh, old Kodak logo. Some of them with the, the more modern one that they use right now, uh, on their website, it was kind of weird because I couldn't tell which logo was going to be on which one, uh, when you ordered them because they had multiple pictures with both logos, um, when you're ordering a particular color style. And I know this because I just ordered two of them. Um, uh, one in the sleek black and one with the, uh, yellow base with the blue top, which is, uh, representative of the ectochrome that I still have here that I have yet to shoot. Uh, and will it encourage me to shoot it? No, it'll just encourage me to take the film out of the box and put it into the film holder. And, uh, and then that's where it will sit and continue to expire. Eventually I probably will shoot it. Uh, but I'm not sure exactly when that will be. And it's unfortunate that these are only in 35 millimeter. I would have loved to have uh, a medium format size for that because I probably would have bought that too. Um, but <laughs> the idea here is that photography is an ever evolving thing and it is what we want it to be as photographers. If we want it to be film, if we want it to be retro, if you want to be tangible with it, then it will be that. And we have the avenue to, to have that experience. Um, but I think that the majority of photos taken today are taken on smartphones. I, I don't think that, I know that. that that's a, probably a statistical fact if I were to look it up by a large margin. Um, and then our dedicated cameras are second and film cameras are a distant third. But, but that distant third still brings us back to the origin point, the love of digging through a shoebox of old photos when you visit your grandparents, which uh, I don't think you should be doing this year. Um, le leave them uh, alone, especially if you have young kids with uh, runny noses. Uh, just kind of keep that physical distancing, but not necessarily social distancing. Maybe buy your grandparents a, uh, a photo scanner for Christmas so that you can all share that shoebox of photos over a Zoom call this year, which I think would be a really fun way to uh, go down memory lane. All right. I think I've talked that one uh, uh, to death, but hey, these- uh, All good these, stuff. These Kodak film canisters, I think are, are really fun and really quite enjoyable. Uh, let's, uh, before we get into actually our picks of the week, uh, I want to ask you, Skip, uh, where people can find you, all of your, uh, you know, missives and opinions on various things uh, of the industry, whether it's a throwback Thursday or whether it's just you looking forward, where can people find your stream of consciousness on my that? stream of consciousness every day is at skipcohenuniversity.com. But I'm also Skip Cohen on Facebook, and I share there every day, and Skip Cohen on Twitter. And then you will find me now and then over at skip at platypod.com um, because there's an awful lot of fun things that are going on in terms of, of expanding perspectives and new technology. And that's another hat that I get to wear as playing CMO for Platypod. Well, and 
And I've been uh, involved with uh, Platypod a little bit uh, and talking with uh, Larry T, the, the the mastermind behind the the products that they come out with. And by the way, um, their upcoming ball head is looking phenomenal. Uh, and, and I was talking with Larry about that recently, about how it's been redesigned, uh, re-engineered such that he felt he needed to even patent things because it was just so uh, incredible what, what they're actually doing right. with this design. Um and uh, maybe that leads, I, I, I have a uh, hint that that might lead into uh, possibly what your pick of the week is, which might be related to that company. You think? <laughs> so is that what you're asking me? Yeah, yeah. What, my what, what, what's my your pick? pick of the week? Well, obviously, um, it's a little bit self-serving, but it's, it's very exciting. My pick of the week would be the uh, Black Friday special. There are four of them going on right now, one of my favorites is the Ultra Ultra Essentials uh, kit, which really gets you into to the system, um, which is the Platypod Ultra together with the um, the multi accessory kit. It's now coming with a free set of goosenecks, um, which add to the expandability and and your ability to do other things with it. And, Plus and, the and by the way, uh, yes. Skip, th- those those gooseneck arms can be used. Um, uh, completely unrelated to the platypod. Uh, I, I, I've often put crab clamps on either side of them, yep. put a crab clamp on a tripod and another one on the other side, and I've, I've held something on the tripod to just use that as a flexible additional tool. Um, and two of them, I mean, it, it. I don't know if I would put two of them on a platypod ultra because it's kind of a smaller base, uh, but you, get, you got them and you can do anything you want with these ingredients. And It depends. I, you know, it's a smaller base, but if you're mounting it, you've got some people out there that are using it and mounting, and they've got the Ultra on their tripod. Um, so oh, yeah. you've got and, added stability, and, and, and you're not going to lose with the, the weight. The, the strap that can go around the Ultra to right. wrap it around a pole or a tree or something, then you've got that extra stability there yeah, as well. Yeah, but that whole kit also comes with the Benroll ball head, and it comes with that square jellyfish phone adapter, which is just a kick to be able to use in conjunction with everything else. So that would be my favorite pick of the week, which is out there at, this is outrageously self-promotional, at $130 with a savings of almost 60 It's That's just a, a pretty great good deal, you know, opportunity. It, and it's one of those things, uh, you know, we talk about longevity in photography. You know, uh, I've always told people, it's like, you know, buy, buy a tripod once. Don't just buy uh, a cheap one and then upgrade to a, a middle of the road one. And then eventually maybe that breaks and you get finally a, a better one. And then that one will last you forever. Well, if you just bought the good one to begin with, uh, then it's going to last you for a very, very long time. And uh, the kind of stuff like like this kind of a setup, a gooseneck is never going to go bad. Uh, the, the Platypod Ultra, uh, un- unless you are incredibly abusive to it, uh, it's you're, you're, and I don't even know how you would do it. Somehow cross thread the the holes or something. It would, it, it would be very very hard to break any of the stuff in a kit like this. Um, and so you buy it once, and it's forever a tool that you have uh, that you can always go back to uh, and reuse. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I'm, I'm a fan as well, and uh, I'm not being paid to say that I'm a fan of the, uh, the Platypod stuff. I just really think that it's a, a very useful tool. I use them, and uh, I mentioned the, the uh, Max Macro Bundle uh, last week with the Lytra torches and 
which I find uh, immensely useful for a lot of different things, including, as we were mentioning, the, the high resolution uh, modes in a lot of cameras require continuous light sources. And those lighter torches are great ones uh, as they come about in uh, not in the kit that you're recommending. They're available in uh, the one that I mentioned last week. But still, hey, take a look at them. Take a look at Platypod. Uh, and uh, and we we like them uh, and uh, our support out to uh, to Larry and the gang uh, that make that happen. Now, my pick um, is something I actually wanted to pick uh, last week, uh, but I was just waiting to really get a full feel for it and have a bit more time with it. And uh, and this week, I noticed specifically that there's a Black Friday deal. It's on right now. It's only going to last maybe another 48 hours as we're recording. So I'm going to get this podcast out quickly so that you might be able to take advantage of. Uh, but it's a $200 off deal on the Loom Pad from Leia Inc., and uh, Leia is the company that made the screen technology in the red hydrogen uh, phone that allows you to see things in 3D with uh, no glasses. And they've produced their own uh, their own tablet, which we talked about on an episode of Inside the Lens uh, with their CEO recently. And uh, I, I didn't get that $200 off discount. I, I paid full price for, uh, for the device because I wanted to support that technology. Um, and I can say that I recommend the technology now um, after like my, my daughter uses and loves it in 2d or in 3d. She's actually quite just amazed when she th- sees things in 3d, when I show her some of my images that I've taken in 3d or um, even playing some of the games uh, in, in 3d is just fantastic. Um, they've got uh, an entire ecosystem that they started in the hydrogen days in terms of their software. Um, they have a light field studio available for Mac right now. Windows version is coming. Uh, that lets you edit and create content within this 3D space. Um, and it's just, it's really a serviceable tablet. Um, you know, I, I tried it out instead of using uh, my, my laptop here for my daughter's uh, uh, daily classes and maybe she wants to watch some cartoons or whatever. Uh, it lasts the entire day on a single charge with a four-year-old at the helm. And so that, oh. that... <laughs> Uh, in terms of battery life, that 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 is a um, a, a huge recommendation, and you know what? I, I, at the price, it's you're going to spend good money on any tablet, right? Uh, you know, if, if you want something from, it's an Android, a, a ten based tablet, and normally it's uh, it's a thousand dollars. But if you take two hundred dollars off of that, uh, and you're at uh, you know seven ninety nine. Um, I'd say that that's a, it's a pretty good price for a tablet. It's going to last a long time. If you have kids that need to have a device, uh, and you're not clamoring after the absolute latest processor, uh, or you need to have something running iOS that will cost you a a considerable amount more. And you want to experiment with this, this 3d space. It's an entirely new dimension, quite literally, um, gets my recommendation. Uh, I, I would give it a five-star review. In fact, I did, um, that uh, you go and explore the Loom Pad, not only for what it is, but also for what it represents and the company trying to push limits, introduce new technology, and whatever they create next is going to be even better. But right now, for that price point, I say jump in and enjoy the ride. You know, your comment about your four-year-old at the helm you just you just took me back. We're talking about nostalgia. You just took me back 15, 20 years ago when Co- one of Kodak's digital camera ads. Um, it's when they had the the camera dropped into a base, and they had a golden retriever come in and put his paw 
on the transfer button so that the images could be seen on TV because it was that easy. So that's a testimonial there. there if anything <laughs> survives a four-year-old at the helm, it's worth looking at. Exactly. And, you know, it, it's fallen over and, and dropped on the floor a couple of times and there's been no damage. I'm not saying that uh, your experiences would be the same, uh, but that is to be expected when you, uh, you know, throw a kindergartner uh, <laughs> into a electronic device. Uh, maybe I should get a case for it. I think they sell those too. I should go back and, and reinvest it now that I know that my daughter loves the device so much, as do I. Um, and uh, just as a, a side pick to that, um, they also have an app called Leapix, which is basically like um, Flickr or Instagram, uh, just a photo sharing, social media uh, kind of environment, specifically for 3D photos that you have to have a compatible device. Right now, there's only two, the LoomPad and the Red Hydrogen. Um, but there's a really vibrant group of people uh, that are sharing some just jaw-dropping images uh, on that platform as well. Uh, and so it's just, it's fun to explore these devices. And is is the industry going to adopt that? Uh, like at large, uh, ubiquitously? Well, I think that it's possible if you can, and it's a great 2D device too. Like it's just, it's, it's a fantastic just tablet. Uh, and so Google Classroom, which is what my daughter uses for her kindergarten right now, um, is not in 3D, but it just functions perfectly fine on that tablet as I explored this week. Um, I think that if, if we could get to a point where we would have uh, a 3D capable display in any phone from Samsung or Apple, um, that it's just, okay, well, it's 2D, but if there's 3D content, it just jumps out at you. Um, then, then I think that we will have an industry adoption of that uh, that is somewhat universal. And I can't wait for that moment because if you haven't explored this stuff in 3D, it's so much fun. Uh, and that's sort of a, a sort of a pet passion of mine to explore that. So I'll get off my soapbox. Uh, soapbox. The loom pad is my recommendation for the week. And uh, uh, I hope everybody at least goes to check it out and see what that technology is all about or listen to the episode of Inside the Lens where we actually dive into what that tech means and the ecosystem around it. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Uh, I really want to thank you, Skip, for being back on this episode. The stories that came out this week, I think that uh, your expertise and uh, your heritage of experience with uh, lended itself perfectly to the discussion. So thanks well, for being here. Always fun to catch up to you, buddy. Uh, and uh, for everybody listening, thank you for listening. Uh, and uh, I appreciate the feedback on every episode. Uh, we will be doing more live episodes in the future. I'm not sure exactly when, but I know that there was a lot of fanfare for the live episode that we did last week. So thank you for that. And in the meantime, between listening to this and the next episode, it's time to stay in and shoot. <laughs>